Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Nigro again with our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. As always, great talking to a lot of you guys over the past week via email, uh, people reaching out uh, through Psychology Today, being able to talk to people about different career paths in the field of psychology, neuropsychology. So again, absolute pleasure and privilege to be able to do this every week and, and share uh the knowledge that I have, and uh, Julie will be joining me for this this episode today. So today's topic is addiction. Now, addiction tends to be synonymous with substance abuse, alcoholism, drug abuse, both. But addiction crosses over many levels um, of human behavior. Sexual addiction gambling addiction, um, religious addiction. Um, ad ad addiction is not something when somebody engages in a particular behavior sets out to pursue. When somebody becomes addicted, it's the result of engaging in repeated behaviors independent of the appropriateness or inappropriateness, uh, healthy or unhealthy, uh, positive, negative implications that behavior has. Uh, and, and, and the brain structure involved in addiction is the mesolimbic dopaminergic system. And dopamine is our pleasure neurotransmitter. It's produced by a structure in the brain called the substantia nigra. And if you actually look at the structure, when I did my neuroanatomy classes, the structure actually looks black, and it literally means black substance. And this is what drives us to continue to engage in any types of behavior over and over again. So if I engage in behavior A, whatever that is, and I like the environmental, emotional, cognitive response from that, I am much more likely to re-engage in that behavior again. Now, you can get to a point where you continue to re-engage where it does become what we would classify as an, an addiction. So, is, is are <clears throat> different addictions treatable? Yes. It gets a little more complicated, and this is where Julie's going to come in when you talk about treating addictions. And if if I'm going to probably use substance abuse as the kind of foundation for treating and working with people with addictions, and uh, again, dopamine is the primary neurotransmitter that is involved in the process of addiction. Um, <clears throat> from uh, a clinical perspective in rarely, rarely, rarely is the actual addiction. Again, whether like I said, I'm going to say with like alcoholism, substance abuse, rarely is that ever the primary diagnosis or the primary reason that somebody is addicted. When you get into, again, as a diagnostician, as a neuropsychologist, I ask a lot about addiction. And which is, what's kind of interesting is prior to cannabis being legalized in the United States, uh, I would ask, you know, any history of 
drug or alcohol abuse. Now I have specifically have to ask for any history of cannabis abuse or use or abuse. And it's kind of how I separate that section in my structured diagnostic clinical interview. And it's really important that I ask the other question, a follow-up question is, what is your primary reason for using whatever substance? Is it recreational? Hey, I'm hanging out with my friends on the weekend. Um, it just feels good. Or are you self-medicating? And I think from my experience and my perspective, the vast majority of people who use substances on a continuous and continual basis that are self-medicating, there's generally an underlying mood disorder, depression, bipolarity, uh, could be uh, schizophrenia. It could even be insomnia, sleep dis disturbances, eating disorders. Uh, so there Addiction is, is powerful, but there's an important concept I want to get across. If I, just, if I just use alcoholism as an example, you are not an alcoholic versus the more healthier perspective. You are an individual struggling with, struggling with alcoholism. Just like I talked about in the episodes with like borderline personality or depression, anxiety. It is something you have. It is not something you are. So from a treatment perspective, uh, whether it's, you know, substance abuse or, um, <clears throat> treatment of, of, of different psychiatric conditions, there is something called the trans-theoretical model. And this was first developed by Prochaska and DiClemente. Uh, the revised model was modified slightly by Freeman and Dolan. So, so these are, it's basically the trans-theoretical model are the stages of actual change. So in, I'm going to use the Freeman and Dolan model because of that the expansion, I think, is really important. And, and in their model, their first stage is anti-contemplation. In that stage, an individual has no interest, insight, willingness, or desire to acknowledge that they have a problem that they need to go into therapy, they need to be on medications, combination of the both. The second stage is pre-contemplation. Pre-contemplation is, think of it this way, yeah, maybe someday I'll get to a point where I'll, I'll possibly or perhaps or possibly consider sitting down and thinking. And in the pre-contemplation stage, an individual is generally recognizes that there's something off kilter or there's some psychiatric discord or disconnect, but they are not ready to have it be put into a diagnostic label. Third stage is contemplation. In the contemplation stage, this is where an individual is actively saying, hey, look, as I've said, the, the, only precursor, the only precursor to psychiatric change is when you get to a state of, of being uncomfortable, saying, I'm tired of thinking, feeling, and acting this way. That is the necessary ingredient and variable for true change to take place. 
The third stage is action. This is where the individual picks up the phone call and asks to get into treatment for therapy. They may talk to their primary care. They may reach out to their psychiatric prescriber. So the action is the actual behavioral activation of beginning the process of actual change. Um, and, and, and the last stage is is maintenance. It's helping the person to maintain uh, a course of action that they've set out upon to modify behaviors that they or and or their individual clinician, prescriber, uh, primary care physician have said, you know, this is a problem and we, we can't ignore it anymore, but we're going to work on, on helping you to maintain the positive changes in your life. So again, using substance abuse as in a, in, in, the, in the United States, um, over the course of the last um, year and a half, where the pandemic has psychologically disconnected us from each other, uh, disenfranchised us, put us into reclusive and secretive places within the confines of our own homes and forced to reckon with our own demons, our own negative thoughts, the negative inf- negative thoughts of our children, the negative thoughts of the, our, our loved ones. Uh, you know, mental health has really skyrocketed as a result of the pandemic. And from my perspective as, as a neuropsychologist in Massachusetts, I don't see any sign of it slowing down at, at any point. But there has also been a surge, I think, in addiction. And I, uh, everybody's liver enzymes are elevated. And when they considered, uh, you know, what are essential businesses to keep open in the United States, liquor stores were one of them. And the reason for that is because if you, if you c- completely stop an individual who is struggling with alcoholism from access to alcohol, you run the risk of what are called like typically the DTs or delirium tremors, you know, immediate withdrawal from uh, or, or stoppage from a lot of substances when somebody has been addicted is very problematic and often requires detoxification, substance abuse treatment, rehabilitation. And, you know, AA is the typical modality of treatment. Uh, something I don't agree with with the AA model, and again, I've said this before, this podcast is going to be filled with controversy. I think AA in and of itself works for a different reason than the 12 steps. AA works because there's a meeting going on every single minute of every single day, and that is the power of the AA or even the NA model. Uh, a lot of people are turned off by the 12 steps, especially those who may not have a spiritual background. And again, is it a perfect model? No. Do we have perfect models in, in, in psychology and psychiatry? No. But we have ones that are strong. But I think AA works because there's a common group of individuals working on a common goal to overcome a common problem and be a support system for one another to interject and to challenge and to change a behavior. But what I don't, I've always struggled with is somebody could have been uh, free from alcohol in from say 40 years 
And you ask ask them, you know, talk about substance abuse, and they will say, um, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Why does that label from an AA perspective have to persist beyond the individual's ability to have overcome that? So we don't, I don't, people don't say, uh, I'm a depressive in remission. I'm, um, and obsessive compulsive in remission. I think there's a heavy burden that 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 the A and the AA, you know AA wasn't based on a, on a clinical model, wasn't based on on a, on a strong evidence based model of treatment. But I I I, I think it places a, a um, it's almost like self. You have to constantly self punish and say that I have made a transgression and that I have to acknowledge that every time I'm asked about, have I ever had a problem with alcohol? And I, I just see that as almost like psychological bondage. It's something I personally and professionally do not agree with because the whole point of the treatment of psychiatric conditions is that they are treatable. Are some curable? Like I said, schizophrenia, no. Bipolarity, no. And, you know, traumatic brain injury, injury, no. But are they treatable? Yes. And there's a huge differentiation between treatment and cure. And it, and it, 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 and I'm going to have Julie come on right now because as a psychiatric prescriber, this gets to be very complicated when someone is actively using and, you know, Again, like I said, I have to specifically ask like about cannabis use. And uh, here's an important fact for adolescents out there and parents with your adolescents. If you have a family history of schizophrenia, and the research is incredibly strong and robust in this area, if you're an adolescent, when I did the schizophrenia episode, I kind of said there's there kind of is this one of these disorders that has a kind of a parameter for manifestation. Um, and <clears throat> so if you have a family history of schizophrenia and you're an adolescent or you are a parent of an adolescent with that family history, you are at an exponentially elevated risk as an adolescent and into early young adulthood of developing a, what's called a first break psychosis. And whether or not that manifests into true schizophrenia, I think depends on the frequency, severity, chronicity of, uh, uh, of usage. And, you know, Mass General has a, what's called like a first break psychosis program. And a lot of times it's treated with intramuscular injections of heavy duty antipsychotics. And uh, I've seen this, I've seen this in my office where uh, a 16, 17, 18 year old has one foot in reality and one foot in a, in a different realm. And some come back, some don't, but there's a lot of denial. Uh, I think denial is a huge part in, in, in substance abuse. Like I don't have a problem. I, I, I can control this, but it can destroy families. It can destroy careers. It can destroy <laughs> your health. You can destroy a multitude. It doesn't have to be a, a singular destructive aspect of an individual's lives. It can be multi-layered and multifaceted. So I'm going to have Julie come on right now and talk about, you know, the psychopharmacological perspective of treating individuals with substance abuse or, or just addictions in general. Julie. So as we speak, I'm having a cocktail. Um, because I need to unwind because I have a lot of social anxiety 
And that's one of the most important things I think people need to realize about substance use disorder. Um, and that's our squeaky stool that we sit on, by the way. People have complained about that. Um, I think with adolescence, it's an awkward time. And I think that's when most adolescents are introduced to substance use, uh, be it marijuana, uh, be it alcohol or any kind of hallucinogen or, you know, recreational drug. Lots of times, you know, adolescence is a very difficult time for most kids. Um, that's when it usually is first introduced. Um, if you ask any person with a substance use disorder, usually there's, they're, you know, genetically, you know, loaded, um, and have a family history of it. Um, but also they usually typically have a family history of undiagnosed mental illness. Um, also trauma. Um, so many different things that people struggle with, um, body dysmorphic disorder, um, PTSD, but anxiety is, I think, probably one of the most uh, crucial, um, you know, <clears throat> and I don't want to say illness because anxiety, we all have anxiety, but so I think adolescents experiment with it early on and I can speak for myself. I mean, I didn't dabble in drugs, but I did drink. I mean, you know, to make myself feel more comfortable in social situations. And, and I didn't smoke marijuana, but with the adolescents that I do treat, um, even the adults that I treat, it all trails back to adolescence for the most part. Um, because people can unwind, they can be more of what they think is themselves and they can feel more comfortable in social situations. Uh, speaking to that, I do want to, kind of hop on what Cor said about um, if you are genetically predisposed to uh, schizophrenia, uh, you really want to be very careful about using marijuana off the street, especially uh, anything involving THC. Um, it, that can be very problematic and it can cause a first break. I think it can probably extend beyond adolescence and early adulthood into um, you know, later adulthood, not maybe until like 30 or 35, 37. Um, <clears throat> like I said before, when we talked about psychosis, I don't know if you heard that program, but it's treated the same way, whether it's drug-induced psychosis um, or whether it's an actual um, organic psychosis that's happening. Um, we treat it with antipsychotics. Um, I also want to say that, um, you know, treating substance, we call it substance use disorder. Now that's the politically correct term. It's not even substance abuse. I have to say in my practice over the last several years, anyone who has suffered that I have come in contact with, with any kind of substance use disorder has also clinically had depression or anxiety or a non-diagnosed bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, and PTSD, um, anxiety. If you ask people, like nowadays, marijuana is legal in the state of Massachusetts. I don't know if it's legal in every state, but it's not considered a substance anymore. So it's an actually had to add it to my intake and my regular check-in with people. When you're asking people about their alcohol use disorder or alcohol use, generally speaking, we were taught in school to, to double it. I would say after the pandemic, triple or quadruple it, because um, what we're hearing from 
regular, you know, primary care doctors, even our own primary care doctor has said that he's dealing and they have been dealing with a lot of mental illness since the pandemic and increased liver enzymes. That's how we know that. <laughs> um, because people, all the liquor stores were open throughout the entire pandemic. Hello. Um, yeah, maybe they were trying to be protective of people who are struggling with alcoholism out there. I'm, I'm not quite sure if that's 100% accurate. But um, I do believe that people were self-medicating because they, they were cooped up at home and they were stuck with their families that they didn't home from their jobs or out of their jobs. And that was how they self-medicated because really what, what medicine could have swaged any of the anxiety that was going on during the pandemic, because even healthcare providers were freaking out. So how, how do psychotropic medications respond when somebody is actively using alcohol or any other substance? So <clears throat> we get, so many referrals um, from people who are struggling both with dual diagnosis, whether it they're, it's something that the patient is, you know, saying that they're struggling with, uh, which usually they're not as forthright, usually find out much later in your relationship with them that they're actually struggling with alcohol. Um, usually people lie down, you know, lie down, meaning lie down in numbers, like I said before. Um, multiply it by two, three, or four, what their usage is. You have to ask if they're using cannabis. My my main concern is when someone's using cannabis, it's like, okay, where are you getting it? Do not do not get it off the street because the street stuff is so dangerous and it's deadly. It's laced with God knows what and people are dying. So I always say, where are you getting it? Are you getting it from a reliable source? Can I get a medical marijuana card? Well, no, because I can't afford it. Um, I can't get a doctor's note for that. And so they'll go to people who are growing it in their homes. You know, this is a business. And they'll go to stores, reputable stores, if they can't go to an actual um, infirmary. So to answer your question, not infirmary. <laughs> oh, my God. How do I get through life? Well, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can tell you from my experience I have not, I can't come to mind of the thousands of neuropsych evals I've done, an individual struggling with alcoholism saying that they drink because they like the taste. The, you, you unpeel the layers and you, that's where you start to see the mental health component of it. So I, in the dual diagnosis modality where you have substance abuse and psychopathology, I don't agree with the sub, with the dual diagnosis model. Again, this is my personal professional opinion because that's the person that, a lot of the dual diagnosis model, they go after the substance abuse or use first and, and negate the underlying mental health or psychiatric condition. The problem with that is not condoning somebody using heroin, not condoning somebody using marijuana or, or, or misusing alcohol, but that's all that person has at that point in time. They are skilled deficient. So it, it's kind of paradoxical from, in, in, in my perspective is I would treat and do focus on the mental health piece first. Get that stabilized because you need to figure out why is the person self-medicating, treat the depression, and then you're more likely to have the person start to decrease the frequency, severity, and duration of whatever substance that they're using or misusing. Okay, so let's be real. If you have tons of money, you can go to these really chic places out in Malibu and you can get the dual diagnosis treatment that you actually need. 
And you can get, you can be coddled and you can be given all kinds of, you know, dual diagnosis treatment based on mental illness. I'm not just saying Malibu. I'm talking about nowadays, really people are going in for a wash and spin. That's what we call it as prescribers. It sounds insensitive, but that's actually what happens. If you're really struggling with any kind of substance use disorder, you need 45 days just getting over that or getting through that at at a facility. Like uh, we have several around the area, but in the past decade, I can speak to the fact that those, those situations are rare. And the, and the real truth to that is you can't get into those places if you're sober. You can only get into places to get detoxed if you're high. So that's the trick they don't tell you. And that's, that's, that's uh, disturbing, but it, it is the way it is. But my, my thing is, is that when you're in outpatient treatment, or even go to partial day treatment, or you're going inpatient for treatment, you've hit a wall, right? You, you, you finally get with a prescriber, you know, there's something wrong, and you're going through stuff, you, you define it, whatever, you know, we're chasing symptoms that it's why I said from day one, it's very difficult to tweak a part what is the substance and what is the mental illness, especially if there's a diagnostic clarity. So people with bipolar disorder actually don't even know that they have it because it's an organic experience. It's, it's, it's mood driven. It has nothing to do with rhyme or reason. And people have no idea why they're feeling the way they're feeling. But when they're manic or hypomanic, they're good to go, right? They might use, but they're good to go. But when they're depressed, they hit so hard, so quick. So having said that, if someone's honest, or we have a good history about that, there is a person that we're dealing with a patient that is struggling with substance use, we try very hard to I'm not licensed to treat, like, let's say heroin addiction, you know, their methadone clinics, that's all other story. Not a big fan, but it is what it is. Uh, Suboxone, Subutex, those are for the opiate addiction. Vivitrol and naltrexone. Well, the naltrexone is what you start people on if they have an alcohol problem. Now they're using naltrexone for suicidality. They're using it for cutting. They're using it for a whole host of addiction issues. You start at 50 milligrams a day, but the ideal is to get people on the Vivitrol. But again, about the the contemplation stage. There are people who say, yeah, I think I want to stop drinking, but I'm not really sure. And it's like, okay, well, I can start you on naltrexone and that will help with your cravings. And then let's try to figure out what's going on with you, with your, with the mental health. And then we treat that. But here's, here, here's where it gets really tricky. Um, you know, when, when people are still using and they come in and they say, my, we're trying to stabilize mood, right? They come in and they, they'll say, my meds aren't working. Well, okay. But if you're still using, there's no way the meds can really do their job. So it's very difficult to look at substance use disorder as abruptly stopping certain medications, certain drugs, you have to stop abruptly and go through withdrawals and get treatment. But, you know, if you're going to do the dance, you got to, really take into consideration the fact that your meds are never going to, that's my oven, by the way, it's ready. Um, they're really not going to do their job until you're ready. Again, that's the, the stages of change, the whether you're ready or not. And people who struggle with addiction struggle 
a lot with this process. You know, I, I hi, I've hit rock bottom. And then I no, you haven't. You know, you said you did. Well, no, it's no, I, I, I thought I did. But and it is a physical and physiological dependence on a substance. So you're dealing with something that's bigger than you as a pr- provider. So and these patients are dealing with something that's bigger than them. That's why I think AA works. And in smart recovery, that's another one that they, they do with that online. It's accessed everywhere. Uh, for people who aren't spiritual per se, and they want a more matter of fact, um, you know, kind of a different style of dealing with recovery with addiction. Um, but AA, you know, I, hundred percent. I agree with the philosophy because, you know, we're both spiritual people, but you hand this over to God. This is bigger than me. That's the bottom line with AA. And AA does work because I have a lot of people in recovery and AA helps them, but that's not for everybody. But I don't think AA works solely because of the 12 steps. I don't it, care about it, the swell. It has nothing it, to do with this the 12 It's the commonality step. of people coming together to work on a collective problem. They, people introduce themselves. It's an, it's, it's a whole process that I I am humbled by because it helps millions of people. So and it and it and it works for so many people. So I'm not touching that with a ten foot pole. I'm just saying it's when you finally say, God, I, I this is bigger than me. I can't do this alone. And that is a collect. That's the collective bottom line of AA. Um, the twelve steps. Yeah, well, no, we can go into Al-Anon, but that's a whole other different chapter. But I'm just saying, if you're struggling, be open with your providers. Just be open. And the th- the saddest part about it is, yeah, people with addiction can really, because they, you know, th- of the deception involved in addiction, can lead to a lot of destruction in relationships in their families, their spouses, their children. It goes on and on. Their jobs, their employers. But at at the end of the day, you know, the more real you are. Um, the more willing you are, the better providers can help you. The other piece I want to speak to is, yes, I know you're afraid to say it because there are providers out there who are extremely judgmental. And there are people out there that are extremely judgmental. But I am not judgmental about that because because based only on my soul experience as a provider, I know that pretty much everyone that's come across my path has been suffering emotionally from whatever it is. And they just happen to be using. And that's a physiological dependence. And in there, just those spirals out of control. And I'm done. Oh, that was that was abrupt. So, you know, this, this is a, a huge topic. Like I said, we, I just kind of put it out there with uh, alcohol, uh, misuse, abuse, dependence, uh, substance use, abuse, dependence. But like I said, it, 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 you know, the addiction pathways, they're strong because it's releasing dopamine. And we love dopamine and we will chase dopamine. That's what makes us feel good. So I think this is going to be an ongoing topic uh, because it, it it's interconnected with the vast majority of psychiatric conditions that we deal with. So this is more of an introduction to addictions. Um, we'll explore in more detail as we continue this wonderful journey through the podcast. Um, as always... 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. Reach out through me, uh, in contact with me through Psychology Today, uh, Psychology Unplugged at Outlook.com. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Back to the quote uh, from Maslow. Learn to become independent of the good opinions of other people. Be well, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye.